Welcome to Slow Stories. I'm Rachel Schwartzman, the founder of Connected Editorial and the host and creator of this podcast. For those of you just joining in, Slow Stories is a series that deep dives into the rising slow content movement. In each of these episodes, I interview brand builders, entrepreneurs, and creative professionals who share what slow content means in the context of what they're building and why slowing down and creating thoughtful stories is more important than ever. This episode begins with a story from Carol Miltimore, who reflects on slowing down and shares a book that's helped her do just that. Here's more from Carol. My name is Carol Miltimore, and I'm the founder and designer of the brand Seek Collective. At Seek Collective, I partner with various artisan communities and fair trade groups in India to produce clothing and textiles. The handloom weaving, natural dyeing, and handblock printing are all very much slow fashion, but running a business is the opposite and pretty nonstop. What helped me really start to slow down was moving to Northern California from New York City about two years ago. There's a different lifestyle here. Priorities are more about being outdoors than anything else. Gardening, though, has become my real passion and a way to help me get grounded. Each morning when I come out to the garden, it's really inspiring to see all the different colors, what's grown, what's changed. It's also been a really valuable teacher to me in terms of being patient with life cycles, with how things grow, the slowness of things. For the plants don't grow quickly, they grow quite slowly often. So being with the earth so intimately has been a very nurturing practice for me. It often reminds me of a book I read called How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy by Jenny O'Dell. One of her lines in this book, which I really loved, was our very idea of productivity is premised on the idea of producing something new, whereas we do not tend to see maintenance and care as productive in the same way. I really like this because so much of gardening is about maintenance and care, and it's really not about being productive. For me, caring for the plants, bearing witness to them growing, observing the change of seasons, watching the birds and the bees who visit, and the whole cycle of all these things together, it brings a lot of peace and reminds me to slow down. Thank you so much again to Carol for sharing. Again, the book she mentioned is How to Do Nothing by Jenny O'Dell. Now here's my conversation with Dina Norsati. Design impacts every aspect of modern life, but it can also serve as a vessel for us to reconnect with time-honored traditions and stories. This duality is often at play in the work of ceramic artist Dina Norsati. Dina's practice rests at the intersection of academia, artistry, and aesthetics, and these elements have informed her namesake brand, Nor Ceramics, which in Dina's words, has helped her to explore ideas of personal purpose and growth, as well as our collective transitions, cultural storytelling, and communal rituals. Even with Dina's appreciation for art in all its forms, her arrival into the world of ceramics was slow going. As she's found her footing creatively, the Brooklyn-based founder has also navigated the complexities of creating work in tandem with building a sustainable business. While this process has been anything but linear, Dina has learned to embrace the imperfections and evolution that comes with creating a business and life with care. And in this interview, Dina spoke more about the synergy between creativity and health, how art can help us emerge from and face our own shadows, and what narratives she hopes to instill in the next generation of artists. 
exists. This introduction only scratches the surface of my conversation with Dina, who had so much wisdom to share about history, storytelling, well-being, and so much more. So without giving too much more away, here's Dina Norsati, founder of Norceramics. My name is Dina Norsati. I am a ceramic artist based out of New York, particularly in Brooklyn. I started my journey in ceramics really from a place of investigating the role of art in different societies. You know, I grew up in a very multicultural home and background, splitting most of my time between France and Kenya growing up, and just being exposed to a vast array of different cultures with a variety of different historical backgrounds and influences, I always kind of wondered what the role of objects were in those societies. And so I started studying international intercultural relations uh, when I was in, in college and eventually found myself in a really inspiring African art history class. And that kind of launched my journey into that inquiry of what is the role of objects in our day-to-day -day lives. You know, being from Africa, uh, originally my father is from Sudan and my mother from Somalia and living in Kenya and East Africa for several years, I wasn't really exposed to the depth and wealth of pre-colonial art and understanding the societies that existed really until I went to college and started to understand the history of it. And, you know, although a lot of these cultures no longer exist in the way that they did at the time, the objects that they created are still around for us to understand. And because, you know, objects were such a central part of these societies and they played a role in every aspect of these societies, you can learn a lot about what their values were, what their beliefs were, what the rituals were, and even how they structured their societies and the role of people in those societies. And so that started kind of my fascination with objects. And eventually I found myself pursuing ceramics very unexpectedly. I, you know, I didn't really come to it until I was much older. I think I was about 27 when I started making ceramics. You know, I think a lot of people that I encounter in the U.S., first, you know, experienced ceramics or pottery when they were probably sometimes in elementary school or in high school, but it came a lot later for me. And so, you know, when it comes to what really brings me joy, I think in life is very much having that relationship with an artistic material. That's always been something that's really framed my way of seeing the world and the references that I have. Even before I started making ceramics, I was an avid dancer. I also really love to be around musicians and artists. And so I think art for me has always had this language that is very kind of, of course, intangible, but also very transcendental. And it's always felt like a little bit of magic. You know, I've always surrounded myself with musicians. And uh, I feel like there's just something so unique and special with with people who have, you know, that, that ability to to move rooms full of people. You know, it, it does really feel like magic to me. So yeah, art, art is definitely what brings me joy on a day-to-day -day basis. It's incredible. And it's probably interesting, you know, alluding to what you were saying about art as kind of a vessel to capture cultures and traditions of the past. I was thinking about a recent interview I did with an author who launched into a 10-year exploration of an unsolved murder and, you know, throughout that process really learned about the responsibility that comes with reconstructing stories and narratives about the past. And I'm curious if, you know, you think about that in the context of art, you know, what that responsibility is, especially as you kind of do this in an age where information compounded with all of the chaos of the digital space can have such an effect on how we carry these narratives forward. 
Absolutely. I think, you know, when you're an artist who is really inspired by the past and especially with ideas and people and cultures that are no longer existing in their form at the time, there is a responsibility because I think, you know, when you think of the way that cultures are formed, in order to understand them, you have to basically have grown up in that worldview. And I think people who do a lot of work around cultural preservation, they always say, like, when you lose a language, you're not just losing a language, but you're also losing a way of thinking. And I think, you know, automatically being someone who is not raised in a particular culture in a particular time, you already are starting at a deficit. And it's a a gap that you can never close because you are still coming from a Western mind. You know, you're still coming from an outsider's mind, no matter if, you know, genetically you are from a people, your mindset and your reality has been crafted. As you said, you know, we we are people of the digital age and the way that our minds work are always going to be very different from the way that an indigenous populations, you know, framework and reality would be. And so, you know, when I'm approaching art, I'm always thinking about that, thinking about, you know, even our relationship with objects. Like we think of objects as being these pieces that just have a very physical function. But, you know, for indigenous peoples, a lot of the time, the physical form is literally just a vessel for something else that's supposed to hold that symbol. And that vessel usually is representing something very symbolically. So, the physical aspect of it is almost secondary to more of like the energetic or symbolic function. And so it, it is, it does take a lot of rewiring the way that you understand your own reality, but also accepting that you will never necessarily be able to fully understand what it is that you're creating and understand the cultures that are inspiring you enough to be able to represent them. So it is like a very, it's a very humbling experience because you have to kind of get comfortable with the uncomfortable and be okay with the fact that you're never necessarily going to understand what it is you're striving to understand, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure. I think that's where stories can really kind of bring some of that uncertainty into focus. And, you know, I think as we speak about the past, I want to, you know, shift gears to your past a little bit. And I'm curious if there is a story that has kind of stayed with you, whether it was an article or a poem or a book that has made you slow down or sort of inspired how you think about art in some of the contexts that we've been speaking about. There's so many books that have, you know, I think so much of my journey, I always think of it as like, you know, the the end result of my journey is the pieces that I make. But the majority of my artistic experience is existing in the day-to-day, the research, the exploration, trying to understand my own relationship with the pieces that I create. And really like the art being almost like a, a way to initiate yourself through these challenges that you come across just being a human being, going through your shadows and challenges and overcoming the challenges that come your way. Um, in many ways, that all of those things feel like initiations to kind of fine-tune your voice as an artist. And I think there's a lot of books, you know, in the last 15 years that I've been, you know, actively in this space that have really influenced me. But I think most recently, one that I have read is by Joseph Campbell, and it's called The Ecstasy of Being. And this one is really interesting, because I think for me, this particular book, I think he he wrote because his wife was a dancer, and they had this connection together. You know, for those who are not familiar with Joseph Campbell's work, I guess he would be categorized as a scholar of myth, and a kind of anthropologist of sorts. And he was very, very kind of fascinated by these archetypes that exist across indigenous cultures around the world. And some of these very like primal stories 
that you find being very similar in different cultures across the world. And uh, also the fact that there is this role of kind of creating experiences that transcend the physical form through dance and storytelling and theater and myth kind of ties all of those together. And then his wife was a dancer, a really brilliant dancer, who also kind of looked to the Greek tragedies and mythology and also different indigenous cultures to understand what these archetypes mean and how you can kind of channel them through dance. And in this book, he has a few chapters where he talks about the the place of the artist and how the artist really is kind of a bridge between these realms where creativity and all of our primal archetypes live and how artists are able to kind of bring those into the forms that they're creating, whether it's physical or through like a live experience with music and dance. And I think those chapters where he talks about that, I I haven't read many pieces of writing that capture what I feel is the relationship between art and this kind of like celestial realm of creativity. I mean, Joseph Campbell's writing generally always just kind of hits home for me. Sounds fascinating. And I think what also drew me to your work and to your appreciation is this sort of reverence for this multidisciplinary outlook on creativity. And, you know, we talked about the performing arts and visual arts, but I'm curious about writing and storytelling and how that kind of fits into your outlook or even your process. Yeah, I mean, definitely for me, the storytelling is the majority of my experience, which is so interesting because, you know, on the surface, people will see my work and and know me as a ceramic artist. But I feel actually that the majority of my time, at least in my mind, is spent around this idea of storytelling. And And it's like the framework through which I understand what I'm creating. I think what drives me to lean towards the storytelling is I feel like there are so many untold stories. And I think, you know, in in our modern Western society, we have lost the art of storytelling and we have lost the art of kind of creating spaces for people to connect to these archetypes that we've talked about, because, you know, these mythological stories are there to help us when we are having, you know, personal, communal or global crises. You know, I think that it's no coincidence that as we go through this pandemic, a lot of people are having these very intense feelings, but then also are having these like huge moments of breakthrough and kind of coming to terms with some very difficult aspects of themselves. And I think these are things that if you look at mythology, they kind of give you the comfort of feeling like this is not the first time that it's happening. And this is also something that almost has to happen to everyone. Like everyone has to face their shadows as a society and on a personal level and that we come out stronger. You know, one of my favorite myths is um, that of the, the goddess Inanna, who's a Sumerian goddess, you know, later became Ishtar in the Babylonian times, I believe. But she represents, you know, the feminine principle, but she also represents not the feminine principle and kind of like the young, naive maiden. She, you know, goes into the underworld and it's this basically a symbolism of going into your own shadows. And then when she emerges out of it, she's like a more empowered, more whole expression of the feminine. I think as a Western society, we have a lot of fear when it comes to dealing with shadows. And we always are prescribing things or trying to suppress things that come up instead of facing the shadows and then knowing that through that we can emerge 
stronger. And so that's what I love about the storytelling. The storytelling, I think, can be like an incredible resource of support and comfort for people. And it also has this power to bring people together. So in a community, you know, not only through like oral tradition and actual storytelling, but it's almost talking about this like feeling of overcoming. And I, and I feel it when I'm designing or when I'm creating, because there is this nostalgic feeling of something lost from the past. You know, I think of like my indigenous background being from the Nile region of Northern Sudan. It's like there is this feeling of like my indigenous history and my people and what could have been. And there is this nostalgia. And I think that that's something it's a it's a very universal feeling of loss that everyone feels. I think this is something that's very primordial. And when you're able to to kind of tap into that collective story and that collective myth, you're able to create art that connects everyone because it really is the story of all people. It's not just the story of where I'm from and how I feel, but it's the story of how everyone collectively feels because it's tapping into like a more primal. Yeah, I keep using this word because it is really like something that that exists within everybody. To your point, we are kind of recalibrating in terms of how we move through the world, especially during a time of transformation. And I think in the context of art and creativity, there's been just such a renaissance in terms of talking about this through the lens of wellness and well-being and identity. And I'm curious what's been the biggest shift for you in terms of how you think about art's relationship with health today and you know how it's made you think about your own role in terms of pushing some of these narratives forward there's always two forces that are very opposite that are always happening when you're an artist in this like modern context is that on one side i think art is really asking people to listen to the process to really be intuitive to feel what they want to do what they don't want to do and it you know we have to as artists lean into this like feeling of inspiration and you know the modern society asks for inspiration to be like served on tap and always available and that's just not how art and the creative spirit moves and so i think for a lot of people when when their art becomes their business it can be really hard to balance these two energies because the production demand and even email demand. Like I've, I've had to kind of start to think about how to create boundaries around email and communication because there is this feeling of being overwhelmed as an artist when really what you want to do is to like clear your head before you go into your day of creating. And so I think, unfortunately, it's not something that you can solve, but it's just something that you have to manage. And I think it's also just a reflection of the culture that we live in. You know, the culture that has evolved in the Western world is not a culture that really centers art and the artistic process. And so it's almost like art is uncomfortable in that framework. And we have to just kind of figure out how to keep ourselves inspired. And, you know, one of my mottos going into 2021 really has been like, protecting my relationship with my art, which means I have to be good about creating boundaries so that I don't fall out of love with it so that it doesn't become like a source of stress for me. Have you had um, periods where you've had to step away? Yeah, yeah, I actually did. It was uh, like 2019 into 2020. I took, it was over a year off. And a lot of it actually was was not about falling out of love with, with my art. It was about getting burnt out from trying to create a business around my art. And I think I took, you know, those lessons and came back to it with that understanding that I have to put my art ahead of everything. And I also made a commitment to not build a business around a practice that I wouldn't enjoy. So I started to really figure out what it is that I like making, what do I enjoy making, and how can I build a business around that and, and you know, restructuring that 
and making that way of thinking the priority has definitely created like a more sustainable lifestyle for me. And, and I think in that time I committed to putting my lifestyle ahead of the business. So making sure that like I take care of myself and I take care of my art first and foremost. Yeah. And I'm sure that those needs will change in tandem with how you grow as a person, as an artist, the environment. I mean, I think we're just going through a massive recalibration in terms of how we approach every aspect of life. And that's certainly been the case for me as someone who has built a business and a presence in the digital age. And I think for me, Slow Stories has really been a process of unlearning and embracing a change in pace that honors intention over output. But that's not, to your point, always easy in the culture that we kind of find ourselves in. And I think, you know, in the context of a very chaotic and performative digital landscape, something that I always like to ask my guests is what this idea of slow content or storytelling means to them. So you can approach this either from a business lens or just purely from a creative place. But what does this idea bring to mind for you in terms of your relationship with Pace and how you kind of approach showing up when sharing these stories about the work that you're putting out and what's important to you as an artist? Yeah, you know, I, I think we have this glorification of productivity. And, and it is, again, this like industrialized mindset. And I think that you can't escape comparing yourself and your production and what you're making to other people. But I think what has given me a lot of peace of mind is I, I once attended this um, like discussion, this like women's salon, and one of the speakers said something that really resonated with me. She said, um, you know, businesses, no matter what business you have, are like an ecosystem. And you have to find your ecosystem and not all ecosystems can scale on the same level. And that really resonated with me. And I've always thought about like, all right, this is my ecosystem. This is how I function. And this is how I can sustain what I'm creating with the variables that I am responsible of taking care of, because it's almost like a stewardship. Like I have taken on this role and I'm creating this ecosystem. And now I have to make sure that all of its pieces are taken care of. and. So my ecosystem is not going to look like another creator's. And so, you know, some ceramic artists are able to, you know, make a huge amount of pieces per day. But I've kind of come to terms with the fact that, like, for me, I need to kind of be in communication with this, like, inspired creative space. And that's really where my pieces kind of come from. And, and I have to almost listen to that relationship. And that like, I just move slower, I, I move more intentionally as a person naturally, in everything I do, you know, it takes me a lot longer to do things than most people, I would say. But it's also just listening to how I function. And I think sometimes having that pressure from the outside to push yourself beyond your means, it's very easy to cave and allow that to kind of become the priority. But I've also understood that that's actually not a sustainable way of being and that, you know, humans naturally need a slower pace to make sure that they're taken care of. And unfortunately, our society is just not framed in that way. Yeah. So it's, it's actually sometimes very difficult to kind of hold your ground and, and prioritize that. But it's kind of, I think for me, what I had to do in order to be able to create the things that I actually want to be creating. I'm sure it helps just because the art is so physical. And I think it's really interesting to talk to people about how they tap into those most inherent kind of depths of creativity in this digital age. And I'm also curious too, 
What draws you the most to the tangible aspects of making? And do you enjoy the artistry, the technique? For those who maybe don't know as much about the actual process, you've translated that so beautifully online, but what are some details that you think are worth mentioning here? It's interesting because, you know, one of the things that people always say is, wow, you know, your work must be so meditative. And then I think there is this perception of ceramics as being this like very beautiful, gentle art. And it is at times, but it's actually very technical, you know, and it's very like sometimes, especially when you're dealing with glazes, you know, you have to have particle masks on and you're using spray guns and you're mixing big buckets of, of raw materials and you're reclaiming clay, which is like taking dried up clay and re-soaking it and drying it on plaster slabs. So it has a very, very technical aspect that isn't so meditative. And so I think in the ways that I can keep that aspect of meditation, I I have done certain adjustments. You know, in the beginning, I was using the wheel, which I felt very disconnected from the material of clay using that. So now I partially use the wheel to build the bases of my pieces, but then I hand build the rest. And that's really when I can put music on and light incense and kind of drop into that more meditative mind space. But apart from that, I think... To be honest, one of the pieces to me that give me that like tingling creative excitement is in the time when I'm like deep in research, when I order, you know, some obscure occult books to understand the symbolism of different plants, you know, um, elements that I'm really drawn to in in that month or that year. And I kind of do like a deep dive into them. And then I start to kind of make those connections between some of the inspiration that I have. And then I kind of create the story around it and it unlocks a design. And then I start to sketch that design. Actually, I don't really sketch designs. I usually just have like what I call free play, which is just getting a lump of clay and then starting to play around with the form until I find the form. But for me, that's like the most exciting part, because of course, after you come up with a design and you you post it on social media and you start selling it, then you just have to go into production mode and you just have to do like, you know, five of those or 10 of those. But that like discovery period of research and design is the most exciting for me. Would you say that your approach has evolved or matured as you've gotten more comfortable with the technical aspects or what are some ways that you're kind of pushing the boundaries? I remember someone, uh, another ceramic artist saying something that I really loved. She, you know, she said uh, a lot of perfectionists are drawn to ceramics because it almost forces us to accept imperfection. And I think that's very true for me. When I first started, I was obsessed with asymmetry and perfect glazes and almost like making everything feel exactly the same. And my evolution, I think, in the last couple of years has been more around allowing for a lot of that creative expression and flow by embracing imperfection and embracing that I will have have certain permanent pieces in, in, that are available, but each piece is going to come out looking really different because it is handmade and I'm going to kind of lean into those differences and also developing glazes that naturally have more texture and that allow like more of the clay to come through and create dimension. For me, that process has actually been really liberating. And, and I think also most recently has been kind of like increasing the scale of my pieces And a lot of the time, you know, what's interesting is like people think that like the more time you spend in the studio, the better your skills get. But I actually found that in that year that I stepped away from from the studio, because I worked so much on myself, somehow that unlocked my technical ability. And I can't really explain why that is, but there is something where your relationship with clay, and I'm sure this is 
you know, true for different art forms is also really dependent on how well you're doing as a person and really how open those channels of communications are in your body between your creativity and your hands. And so a lot of the time, like this is why I really lean into self-care and, and listening to myself because I'm only as good of a ceramic artist as I am as just a person. I think to step away is really also to remove yourself from distractions. And I'm sure after kind of re-entering after that period, you were able to see things that maybe the world as it's set up kind of obscured or took time away from that we need to kind of be able to process some of these things in terms of our creativity. And, you know, I'm curious as you think about having these conversations with future generations of artists who will be even more affected by all of the digital ubiquity, you know, how do you hope to kind of shape the narrative around what it means to be an artist? You know, one thing that I've been thinking about recently is I've just been having this almost desire to mentor. You know, now I'm in my 30s and I'm feeling like how amazing would it have been to be like in my early 20s looking for some guidance. And I was always kind of as a young woman in New York looking for almost like my female elders and not really coming across that as an artist or someone who was artistically inclined. And so I've, I've set this intention this year to kind of, you know, bring into my reality someone who I can create kind of a mentor-apprentice relationship with. And I think that for me is one of the most important ways to kind of create like cross-generational communication and also to encourage young artists to not forget the importance of disconnecting from the digital workflow, you know, because they will be more exposed to that and more used to that level of production and content creation. You would think in a place like New York that access to different perspectives would be easier to find. I found I, maybe just because I haven't left my neighborhood since last March, my world has become much more insular just due to COVID. But I think this time has created space for introspection for me just being with myself and being able to think about how to kind of rebuild community after this time has been really critical. And I think in the vein of mentorship, it's also allowed us to ask more, I guess, reflective questions, you know, as you kind of continue to move through this time and build on your practice. I'm curious if there is a particular question that you hope people start asking you more often, you know, what's important to you moving forward? I think actually the question is is one that you asked. I think a lot of people kind of miss the storytelling aspect. And I think that now we're becoming kind of more aware of that depth of kind of like the artist's intention. You know, sometimes it's like people will really lean into like very physical aspects of the making process. But I think the most fascinating part of speaking to artists is understanding what their journey is and where they're, you know, creating from and why they're creating. So I think, you know, normalizing the conversation around storytelling with artists, I think, is really important. Is there a question that you hope to ask a particular artist in your life that's sort of been percolating for you? Yeah, I think um, what um, I am really fascinated by is this idea of like shadow work. It can sound very intense and dramatic, but I feel like, and I think Joseph Campbell in the book that I referenced talks about this, is this ability to kind of walk in this liminal space between light and dark. And so the the emotions that they're relaying through their art tend to kind of have this 
bittersweet feeling. And they also, I think, have a lot of experience going into their own personal shadows. And it's almost like the art forces you to do that. You know, of course, it takes some time to get to know someone and the vulnerability that comes with sharing one's shadows. But for me, that's another conversation that I would love to normalize, because I think in the perfection of the digital age, there's not a lot of opportunities for people to see that everyone goes through that shadow work and everyone goes through those painful times. And some people are able to alchemize it into art. I think that conversation is really fascinating. I'm certainly, I guess, the storyteller writer, I think going through a period of emerging from my shadow and looking at the things that I want to change as we come out of this time. And I think that alone is probably a whole other conversation for the purposes of this interview to leave our listeners with a note of how they can kind of emerge and even reconnect with their own artistic identities. This question is a nice way to sort of bring everything that we've talked about full circle, especially through the lens of creating in the digital age and you know that question is why do you think slowing down our relationship to content or to the digital space will ultimately help us live work and feel better but also create better too yeah i love this question um you know, i think like a lot of changes for them to happen it really needs to happen on on the societal level I think the reason why it's very hard for people to feel like they have space for self-care is because the structure of our society is not built to create self-care. And so I think, you know, the majority of the work, of course, is going to be internally, but also externally. I think as a society, it's like we, and it's kind of a chicken and egg thing is like, who's going to start it? How are we going to create it? But it's an effort that is going to need to happen on many different levels. I think, you know, the pandemic has taught a lot of employers that people can work from home and people are happier being able to, you know, cook a a meal, be able to work from their bed if they want to, whatever that looks like, that we don't need to have a structure to create and, and to be good employees or to be, you know, people that are productive, that like that definition can really be in the hands of the person working. And even just to change on that level is like to recognize the humanity and needs of people. That's a, a major structural change. And I think if we can keep inspiring these small changes, then we can build a society that really has the framework to support self-care and to support also slowing down. And I think once a society has been kind of created to accommodate that, then it becomes really easy and everyone can kind of be in a flow when it comes to creating intentionally and creating at a sustainable pace. And it's almost, you know, how things get self-regulated. What I love about studying, you know, cultural anthropology and indigenous cultures is that a lot of these societies, their framework was built around resource responsibility because it naturally would not evolve or develop too fast in a way that it wouldn't allow resources to regenerate. And so right now what we're talking about is like human capital and human energy. And the problem is that our society functions in a way that is just so fast that it taps out human capital and emotional resources. And so the thing is, how do you fine tune it so that society naturally self-regulates to allow people to take care of themselves? That was Dina Narsati, founder of Nar Ceramics. Shop Dina's work online at narceramics.com and follow on social at nar underscore ceramics. Stay tuned as we'll be sharing highlights from this episode at Slow Stories Official on Instagram and at Slow Stories Pod on Twitter. 
I'm Rachel Schwartzman, and you've been listening to Slow Stories. Thank you so much for tuning in. 